Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Boxing District podcast. Yes, we, or I should say me, have started a podcast aiming for around an hour an episode. Uh, it's just me, I'm the only one here. The Boxing District, I'm Lawrence if you didn't know. Uh, it's going to be probably quite a varied release schedule for this podcast. I am aiming for around weekly, but I have no idea if that's going to be achieved. Uh, it's obviously going to be about boxing. It's unscripted. It's probably going to be pretty rambling, pretty relaxed. It's just me having to talk for an hour, so I don't know how well that's going to go. Um, it's probably going to be quicker and easier for me to make than regular videos, so that's really why I'm doing it, so I can increase the level of content on the channel. Uh, I will talk about boxing very soon. I'm just going to start with some channel admin stuff. I appreciate that technically, in terms of editing and audio, the videos aren't really up to scratch. They're not good enough. I, I just don't have any time. I don't have the equipment. I am trying my best. I'm trying to upload more, but I don't know what I can do. And I, I am working on it, and I'm hoping to keep up some level of content, because some content's better than no content. I think that's essentially why I'm doing it. Right. So, uh, the podcast. I want to chat about boxing, some new stuff, some old stuff, anything boxing-related. I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. It's just going to be an hour of me talking. It's not going to be edited. It's not scripted. I'm just going to go for it. So um, that's essentially the admin side of it. I, it's just me. There's no co-host. There's no one to bounce off of. I appreciate most podcasts do have more than one person and they probably work better with more than one person. And I suppose potentially there could be a situation where I had some kind of co-host or partner or something or guests on. But um, we'll have to see if that ever came up. I for the time being, it is just going to be me. There's no no one else possible to be part of it. I I can't bring someone else in. This is just recorded on the same thing that I record my videos on, which is my phone. So there's no chance of anyone else coming in. But anyway, I've had my talk about the channel. That's the boring stuff. No one cares about that. I'm going to go on to the boxing. So I just want to start off. We're going to talk about heavyweights. Firstly, going to start with the big fight, obviously, Fury versus Joshua. That's the one everyone's interested in. There's been so much positivity coming out right now from all sides. Uh, just contrasting so shockingly the, uh, the the Joshua Fury negotiations. There's constant negativity, you know, name-calling. Eddie Hearn was calling Shelley Finkel, Shirley Winkle, just in every interview he could. You know, they were bouncing in the media. Oh, we're offering this, you're offering that. Oh, you're lying about this, we're not ducking that. And you just you contrast it with the the Fury Joshua negotiations. Think, oh, that's what it's like when it's going well, right? When everyone just makes the odd comment to the media, going, "Yeah, we're working on it. It's really good signs. Everyone seems positive." It's such a stunning contrast, really, the difference between those negotiations. You know, sort of 2018, 2017 time with a uh, Joshua Wilder, just really all in bad faith. You know, going back and forth with each other. There's all rumors about we've offered this and proof of funds, but ev everything seems really good with Fury Joshua. Joshua. Uh, they're all making very good signs. Eddie Hearn came out. He said there is no plan B. Everyone seems to be going really forward for it. I think Joshua's side, you know, they've been burnt once losing to Ruiz. They almost lost everything there. If Joshua had lost that rematch, I mean, there was talk about him retiring. I don't think that was ever coming from him, but it's still a really bad sign. And I think Eddie Hearn and his team really uh, got their fingers burnt there. And they don't want to risk it anymore. They just want to get in there with the biggest names possible, make the money, make the big fights. And I mean, that's good for us boxing fans. Fury's side, I think Fury's so erratic, they're probably thinking, some weeks in an interview he says he's going to fight for another 15 years, beat uh, Klitschko and Larry Holmes, defence records, stuff like that. And then some weeks suddenly he says he's only got three fights left of his career, then he's going to retire. So I think his team is looking at him a little bit erratic about what he wants from the sport and just thinking, it's time to just get it done. You know, we don't want to wait around, don't want to risk anything. Uh, obviously, the one thing that is really uh, up in the air still is the venue. Um... It's very unclear. They seem to be pretty vague about it. Obviously, Saudi is always going to be there. They've got that working relationship with Eddie Hearn and Joshua, and there'll be a lot of money coming to get that fight there. I imagine that... I mean, this is government-backed money. This is a government of one of the biggest oil exporters in the world. They've got you know money coming out. There is blow any promoter or venue out the water in terms of how much they can, they can offer in terms of money. So I feel like Saudi's got to be the favourite, but... I mean, there's other places in the Middle East. I guess the UAE wouldn't turn it down, whether or not they're going to try and compete with the Saudis on that one. America, obviously, is still going to be the a, a big option. It's, you know, you could get huge... I mean, that could sell out a stadium in America, or, you know, they could do somewhere... You could probably do MGM Grand in Las Vegas and charge, like, a million quid for the bloody front row tickets. So there's definitely always going to be a lot of money for that fight in America. Um... Any other the thing is the one country it looks like it, the fight really can't be in is the United Kingdom obviously which is really sad for the UK fans this is two 
British fighters. This is going to be two British fighters competing in the first ever four belt undisputed heavyweight championship fight. Two British fighters, and it looks really like it's not going to be in the UK. And I, I mean, it's just a revenue thing, isn't it? Fundamentally, they're not going to turn down a load more money. How's that? The promoters, I mean, the fighters might say, make noise, oh, I want it in the UK for the UK fans. But, you know, they've got managers and people in their team who, who want to maximise all the money they can. They don't, they don't really care about the UK fans, to be honest. They care about the money. That's, that's just the fact. It, it is, it's a sport, but it's also a business. So you look at somewhere like Wembley and you think, that's not going to compete money-wise with somewhere like Saudi, really. Um, any kind of wild cards? I don't know, like China, Japan, Australia. I can't, I just, I can only really see it in America or the Middle East, to be honest. Um, I remember there was talk of Joshua fighting in the same stadium in Africa that the Rumble in the Jungle took place in, which would be a, a crazy situation, but I don't see it happening that. You've got to look at Saudi as their favourite. They've got they got a government's worth of money behind them, and I, and I'm sure they'll be willing to pay for both fights, assuming there's a rematch, which I'm de I'm sure there definitely will be. So yeah, the UK fans sadly look unlikely to get it on home shores. Um, I've been to an anti-Joshua fight at Wembley. It was amazing. I could only imagine what it'd be like for Joshua Fury, but. I suppose for the travelling fans, they might enjoy it more, even though I'm sure there'll be fewer of them. If it is in Saudi Arabia, there's going to be no alcohol, but that's not necessarily a totally ruining factor of the fight. It could still be a great time going out to Saudi for the, the UK fans that make the trip. Um, so yeah, that's what it looks like on the front of Fury Joshua. Obviously, that is just completely contrasted with the bad signs of the Joshua Wilder negotiations, which I wanted to mention anyway to segue into Deontay Wilder this week has been all over the headlines because of some really bad blood really bad blood and comments and accusations and all the things being thrown around between him and his now former coach Mark Breland so just to bring everyone up to speed Mark Breland obviously threw in the towel in the fight with Tyson Fury in February 2020 when Wilder was getting pretty much battered in about the seventh round he'd been knocked down twice uh, he really didn't look like he had anything going in that fight. He didn't look like he had a path back into it. Mark Breland threw in the towel, even though he's not Jonte Wilder's head coach. That's actually Jay Diaz, but they have a quite a, a flat power structure. They always talk about how they're like double head coaches, but Jay Diaz was always sort of the main man, but then Breland threw in the towel, which, I mean, generally the head coach throws in the towel, but obviously Breland did it anyway. It counted. At the time, Wilder was really angry. He was like, oh, I wanted him to go out in his sheet. I wanted to go out on my shield. I did they shouldn't have thrown the towel in. Jay Diaz seemed a bit sort of un not angry about it, but he wasn't happy. I guess he probably thought that should have been him, but most outsiders thought, you know what, Wilder was getting absolutely destroyed. He had no path back into that fight. He was bleeding out his ear or something. He looked tired. He looked shocked. He looked confused in the ring. He thought, someone's come in and just absolutely put it on me here, and I haven't got a clue what to do. That's what Wilder looked like. And most most outsiders say throwing in the towel is absolutely the right thing to do. Obviously, yeah, Breland took a lot of flack over that from internally in the Wilder camp. Um, there's that story Steve Bunce always tells of Mark Breland being locked outside the changing room on the night of the fight. They didn't let him in, which is, you know, shocking behaviour, really. How many years have these guys known each other? Although that's going to come up later. I think it's been like 10 years they've been working together or something roughly like that. And it's just quite stunning that they did that. They didn't even let him in the changing room when he threw in the towel, which was fundamentally made that decision for Wilder's safety. And Wilder was, you know, he's bleeding in there. He was, he was getting battered. So even if Wilder thinks, oh, I wanted to go out on my shield, I don't think there's any real justification for what they've done there, locking him out of the changing room. But anyway, so after all that, obviously, Breland has, Breland has recently come out with some really harsh statements about Wilder. I mean, absolutely trashing him. So he doesn't train hard enough, doesn't um, jump rope, doesn't hit the bag enough. Obviously, there's plenty of footage of Wilder doing these things, but obviously, there's you know that's not going to be what their training's like every day. They're going to know there's a camera there, so that doesn't necessarily mean that just because you can point at the thing, and go, oh look, here's a video of Wilder hitting the bag, doesn't mean that Breland's statements don't cold water. But then he's gone, you know, he's gone so much further. He said doesn't use his jab at all well enough. Trashed that. He's trashed his training. They say that they don't spar enough. They're not hard enough. They say if Wilder doesn't want to train, they don't really train. Then he's not disciplined enough. Sort of really kind of savage. They never beaten anyone good apart from Luis Ortiz, which, you know, to be honest, you look at Wilder's resume and you, you do have a debate there about the quality of opposition, whether or not you want his coach to be coming out and saying it. I mean, but anyway, just really, really savage remarks. Um, 
trashing Jay Diaz as well, sort of saying Jay Diaz isn't good enough, saying that he could, he hasn't talked to Wilder alone for years, which is just quite bizarre, really. Like everything Breland said had to go through Jay Diaz, which I mean is is odd. I, I it's it's a very strange set of statements from Mark Breland. He's saying, "Oh, what?" I think he was trying to imply that. With his coaching ability, Wilder could have could have beaten Joshua and Fury. He said, oh, I have a plan to beat Joshua and Fury. Some people thought he meant himself, but I think it's pretty clear he meant, like, for Wilder to beat Joshua and Fury. I don't think Mark Breland at, what, like, 40, 50 years old was, like, a middleweight or something. I don't think he's implying that he could have beaten uh, Joshua. He could beat Joshua and Fury now. But, yeah, really coming out trashing Wilder, just... Just saying he doesn't train hard enough, saying he's not good enough. Just really savage stuff. And it's interesting because the sort of catalyst for this is, well, firstly, Wilder sacked Breland, even though it looked like for a time Wilder had seemed to forgive Breland and Wilder's team, JD, as they were saying, yeah, we didn't want him to throw the towel in, but we understand why he made the decision. That's okay. But then at some point, Wilder sacked Breland. I'm not sure exactly when it was. There was all sort of rumours about it. Fury came out at one point and says, if Wilder sacks Breland, I'll bring him into my team, which, I mean, obviously makes great sense if you're Tyson Fury, if they were having a, a trilogy fight, as though it doesn't look like it's going to happen now with uh, all the different reasons for that, the COVID situation, run out of time on their rematch clause, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, yeah, at some point, Breland's been sacked. And obviously, if you look at the excuses Wilder's made for losing to Fury, one of them was he's essentially alleged that um, Breland... I mean, cheated, uh, cheated, sabotaged him, whatever exact words you want to use, put muscle relaxers in his water, which is, uh, I mean, just ludicrous. Why, why would not Mark Breland do that? It's his own fighter. I mean, you could say he'd been bribed or something, but any any money he could get from a bribe, surely he could get more from actually coaching Wilder to beat Fury and making sure he's um undisputed champion fighting Joshua. So, I mean, that's just ludicrous. You think, you look, at, look at Wilder in the ring. They didn't have muscle relaxers. What does that even mean? Obviously... Wilder's made a load of different excuses for losing to Fury. The first one that came out straight away within a few days of the fight was that his costume was too heavy. That was the one, you know, widely mocked about the um, the, the, the the gear Wilder wore into the ring was um, it was kind of like a big black like me like a I don't even know how to describe it, like a mecha suit. It was like uh, trying to look like a, like a, tr a transformer or something. I don't know. It had a big. Apparently, he had a big power pack and batteries on his back for all the lights and action or whatever. And apparently, that was too heavy and it knackered him out. Then he said, um, "He's both said that Fury had um, knuckle dusters on, wrapped into his uh, wrapped into his gloves, but also that he put the gloves on wrong so that his fist wasn't in the padded part." And he, he hit him with the less padded part, but his knuckles still made contact. So Wilder's made double accusations there about the glove, even though obviously in all big professional boxing fights, someone from Wilder's team will watch Fury get his hands wrapped to stop anything from that like that happening. So, I mean, that's just ludicrous. I'm pretty sure people have come out and said, JD has watched Fury get his hands wrapped and had his gloves put on and okayed it. I mean, like happens in all the big fights. So I mean, that's just a joke. If you think, Fury had knuckle dusters on or he put the gloves on dodgy. And I've seen so many people say, oh, Fury had the gloves on dodgy so he could hit Wilder harder. I mean, it's just a, that's just not going to have happened at all. It clearly didn't happen. Jay Diaz was there. If there was even the slightest look of something dodgy, Jay Diaz is going to be looking at any excuse to mess around with the hand wraps, isn't he? He's going to have any, he wants any excuse to say Fury's hand wraps are dodgy. So that's just a joke. What other kind of excuses has Wilder made? He said all these different things. He's alleged just sabotage and things like that and Fury's team and cheating and all these crazy things. Wilder clearly has slightly collapsed after his loss. He didn't say anything for a long time then. What was it about? A couple of months ago, he put some very strange statement out uh, re just recording himself saying how he was like a king and he didn't deserve to lose and all these allegations of cheating. And anyway, that's what Wilder has been doing since losing to Fury, whereas Fury's just been sort of not quiet but he hasn't been in any way just been waiting to make this uh Joshua fight happen obviously Fury was going to have a fight in like December but that never came through but anyway Breland made all these accusations after being fired by Wilder uh Wilder has responded to that he he's come out quite shocked you know he said about their their huge their friendship that's been lasted so many years, how long they've had a working relationship, you know, their families know each other, which is fair enough does seem to be the case. Breland has been working with Deontay Wilder for a really long time. 
Um, Wilder said that Bre Mark Breland might be jealous. I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. I don't know why Breland would be jealous of someone who's just been knocked out and lost their heavyweight championship. You know, Breland was a multiple-time world champion, a really great boxer. So I'm not really sure why he'd be jealous of Deontay Wilder, but I understand Wilder's, you know, all over the place, and he's just had this huge sort of assault from his own ex-coach. Uh, at some point in this sort of hit back to Breland, um, Wilder's called Breland a coward and a bitch, so I don't really know what that's in reference to. I guess it's because he's made all these statements sort of behind Wilder's back. That makes him a coward, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a weird one there. So yeah, they've been going back and forth. Uh, it's a really kind of muddy situation. I imagine the truth of these allegations lies somewhere in the middle. Listen, the fact is, it's Wilder's fault mainly. He's the one who's ballsed up here mostly because he's kicked out Breland on the night sacked him and accused him of sort of cheating and sabotage. I mean, that, that is just disgraceful at the end of the day. Firstly, kicking him out on the night of the fight of the changing room. Breland, Breland saved Deontay Wilder in there. He was, he was about to get absolutely clattered and rendered unconscious. The, he, was get, he was in the corner of the ring, had no movement, didn't know what to do. Fury was starting to unload on him. Mark Breland threw the towel in because he knew it was over. This was after seven rounds. He would have had five more rounds. What about going out on his shield? We have, I mean, I've already discussed going out on a shield on this channel in the Dubois video and why it's just a sort of toxic attitude. But yeah, Wilder, I mean, this is heavyweights. This is big, hard-punching heavyweights. Wilder could have been seriously, seriously injured in there if he'd carried on. Breland absolutely did the right thing by throwing the towel in, but even if you're wild and you really didn't want Breland to throw the towel in, I mean, the accusations of sacking him, and then the accusations of him sabotaging with the muscle relaxers in the water, I mean, that, that's that's absolutely grounds for defamation. Surely Mark Breland has some kind of legal action there, because it's just not true, is it? Obviously. Uh, so I uh, so Wilder is the most one at fault here, but Mark Breland, you know, talking a lot of weird things about um, the exact. It's probably exaggerating the issues around training, saying he doesn't work hard enough. Because I mean, I'm, there's there's probably an element of it that might be true, but Breland's been there for eight years, and you just think if it's so bad, why hasn't he doesn't done anything? Why hasn't he kind of raised some alarm bells? Why was he still there? What was he doing? Waiting for Wilder to lose because he knew it was coming if the training was so bad. He trashed Wilder's jab. It's interesting, Wilder. Wilder's jab is a really it's a really funny one because when he uses it, it's really good. Even even um even Breland pointed out in the Stavern rematch, Wilder used his jab really effectively there, which he did. If you watch Deontay Wilder knocking out Berman Stavern in a round, it's almost all on the jab. He's bouncing back and forth, fires out these big long jabs straight through Stiverne's guard. I mean, he does all the work with his jab there, but... So, it's funny, Wilder's jab. It, it's almost like Schrodinger's jab. When it's there, it's it's both really good and really bad at the same time, because when it's there and he uses it as well, it's amazing, but Wilder's often so sort of lazy with his jab. What, what you can tell about Wilder is that they always say the jab is the most important punch in boxing, it's your biggest piece of offence, and that is absolutely correct. But then you look at Wilder the way he uses his jab, you just think, he doesn't think that, does he? What he, uses, he uses his jab essentially just a rangefinder for his big straight right hand, which he's obsessed with, you know, his big right hand, the most powerful knockout puncher in the world, whatever. And then maybe, maybe he probably is the most powerful knockout puncher in the world, but he's clearly just doesn't want to use his jab. He's not, he's not a jabbing fighter who loves to just jab someone. And I think that's what Breland's getting at, which is true. But then he's gone over the top by basically saying, oh, he's got no jab. He's useless with it. Because when he does use it really well, and, and occasionally he does in the fights, you, you see flashes of it against Fury where he'll just pop and jab to the body. And you just think, yeah, that, that's great, Wild. This, I mean, Wild is this huge, lanky guy. He's like six foot seven, absolutely huge, long arms. And I mean, this guy's such a power hit. You can imagine his jab's got some absolute sting on it. If he just popped off his jab, you know, tried to improve his footwork a little bit, just a bit more mobile in the ring a bit and just popped off his jab, I mean, that could be a serious weapon. But he, he never uses it like that, really, Wilder. He, he, he is a rangefinder for him. He's using it, a jab, purely to set up a right hand, which, I mean, is not the right way to use a jab, but that's his philosophy and it, it worked up until the, second, well, the, the first Fury fight or the second Fury fight, depending on how you feel about the draw. Um, so Breland has got at something correct there, but he's gone a bit over the top with how how savage he was about Wilder's jab. I mean, clearly Wilder, could, I think everyone would agree Wilder could use his jab better and could use it more and, you know, be a bit more creative with it, use it as sort of a, as an offense in itself rather than just the means to set up the ends, which is his right hand, which is clearly what he cares about. Um, then you look at 
this stuff around training and you know slagging off Jay Diaz and you think that's probably a bit far from Breland he's probably you know he's clearly he's hurt I mean he's been he's been sacked and he's been accused of sabotage so you can you can understand why he's hurt you can understand why he I mean like I said he could have sued he could have sued Wilder for what he's done to him absolutely could have taken legal action and probably got a load of bloody money off him because Wilder's acted disgracefully towards him but instead he's gone for this kind of dragging him publicly and it's a bit you think I mean clearly Wilder's training isn't that bad because the guy absolutely has, I mean, the guy has 12-round cardio. Uh, obviously, he did look a little bit sort of dazed and, and tired in the, the the second Fury fight, but I think that was partly just the sort of shock of just getting it put on him. He'd, he'd never fought 12 rounds like that before. That's why he, that's why he lost his breath in the, the Fury rematch, because he hadn't been, you know, someone just coming at him, going for him all the time, and that kind of shocked him. Then he lost his cardio. Then it's he wasn't comfortable in the ring. That's why he got tired out. But I mean, the guy when he's comfortable can easily do twelve rounds. I mean, he's been he's been a twelve round fighter for years. So I don't know about these saying about he doesn't do enough cardio and saying he doesn't hit the bag enough. I I suppose that maybe he doesn't hit the bag enough. But he could Wilder could spend eight could do the, spend the next three months hitting the bag. But if it's not done well, it doesn't necessarily improve anything. So pointing that out is a bit of a not moot, but doesn't necessarily mean much in itself, you know, because it's about it's about the whole breadth of your coaching, how you coach a fighter and how you improve their skill. You you, you use hitting the bag to train them to do certain things and work on certain things. The thing wild the things Wilder need to work on is using his jab more, improving his footwork and mobility is is the main things, you know. The guy is just the guy's so sort of plodding around in the ring. He doesn't kind of bounce around. He's, he's constantly crossing over his feet. He, yeah, so he needs to work on his jab more. Um, probably put keep he. There's there's a few issues with Wilder's guard that I could go into. But anyway, I'm not really here to dissect Deontay Wilder's fighting style. He's he's got his issues. Um, you know about the movement about jab and and Breland has pointed these things out. But then he talks about like skipping rope. I guess that's an example of being of mobility. But again, Deontay Wilder could skip for the next three months and it wouldn't necessarily solve things. There's just there's there's problems with his game that need like a whole coaching overhaul, and I, I do agree in that sense that Jonte Wilder clearly is being poorly coached because you everyone can see the problems with it. Everyone can point and say this is sloppy, this needs to improve, use a jab more, work on this, work on that. Everyone can see. I mean, everyone is every pundit and two bit analyst points these things out, like I've just done, obviously, and 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 but nothing changes. He doesn't improve even in that. The Luis Ortiz rematch. You thought, oh god, he's he's fought this guy once before, and he, he's still he's done nothing to change his style. He's done nothing to work on things. Obviously, then in the seventh round, he managed to get the knockout blow, and it all worked out fine. But he did lose six rounds on the trot there against Luis Ortiz in the rematch. And you did watch Wilder in that fight. And you thought you fought this guy before. You should roughly know what's coming. But he just looked. He just looked how Wilder looked in every single fight. He didn't have didn't have change anything or do much different but obviously he won in the end he got seventh round knockout so you can't say too much but you do agree that clearly something needs to change with Deontay Wilder's coaching I don't think Mark firing Mark Breland is going to help that obviously he has changed his coaching in some way by doing that but Jay Diaz I'm not sure anyone else he's he's high he's coached before I think does he have the experience you'd love to get Wilder someone really really experienced really had a kind of plan for okay this is what we're going to change about your fighting style Deontay does his current team really have that I don't know uh it's it's not clear anyway so it's interesting Breland has point made up some good points but he's probably gone a bit too far and he's clearly very personally hurt by this so it's not exactly clear how much of it he's being totally objective about. I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm sure Deontay Wilder does hit the bag and does do some jump rope at some points because, I mean, he's a boxer and he's got great cardio and he's not completely useless. He's still heavyweight champion of the world, so he clearly does some stuff, but I understand Breland rightfully pointing out some problems in his thing, in his team. Uh, Eddie Hearn, anti-Joshua's promoter, is probably, presumably just absolutely loving this. I mean, as you go back to those Wilder-Joshua public negotiations, he was constantly slamming members of Wilder's team. Wilder's team was slamming him. They were they were saying, he, to anyone who would listen, they're saying, oh, Hearn and Joshua are ducking the fight. Uh, they don't want it. They don't want to fight Wilder. They're just hyping this up. They're never going to fight him. Obviously, there was a whole saga around 50 million. They were paying him $50 million or something. They were apparently Deontay Wilder himself messaged like Eddie Hearn, like, hello, it's Deontay. I'm offering you 50 million. I'm offering 50 million. Let's get Joshua over here to fight or whatever. And then there was, they talk about proof of funds and this and that. 
And Hearn was saying, oh, that's such a ludicrous situation. Why is Wilder contacting Merck directly? It's all through the promoters and managers and stuff like that. And obviously, Eddie Hearn now seems vindicated, especially since the, the loss the loss to Fury. It seems like more people are coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, Wilder's team were a bit toxic. You couldn't really get to him. They weren't very nice. Obviously, there was the the big thing. Lou DiBella, who was somewhat involved with... Um, Wilder, but it wasn't exactly clear how. Wilder at one point had Ludabella, Shelley Finkel, and Al Heyman all sort of surrounding him, and it it was very unclear exactly what his his management structure was. But anyway, Ludabella set up this meeting with DeZoon for a potential uh, two fights with Joshua at some point, but before the Ortiz second fight, uh, no, before the Brazil fight. So they they offered hundred million dollars overall DeZoon. They said twenty million for the Brazil fight. 240 millions to fight Anthony Joshua. Uh, that was what DeZone offered. The reason he went to meet with DeZone, which is Anthony Joshua's um, promotion company, he's got an exclusivity deal with them in the US. I believe he's got some kind of agreement with them. Whereas Wilder is a lot more loose on the. He has a working relationship with Al Heyman, but he's never been pinned down with him for more than one fight. So he could theoretically work anywhere. That's why he had the meeting with DeZone. But Lou DeBella set that up. Obviously, DeZone offered a whole load of money, something that Al Heyman and Showtime he was working with and Fox, they, they couldn't compete with that. So suddenly, they now they have to pay Deontay a hell load more because he knows how much he could get from DeZone. And apparently after that, Lou DiBella was kicked out of uh, Wilder's management team. They didn't, I think they like left, I think they left him at the meeting. They didn't even let him get in the car. They shut the door on him and like drove away or something crazy with that. And then after that, he wasn't involved with Wilder. So I think that gives a bit of an insight into the Wilder team, you know, they 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 were they, they were lying from day one because they were talking about um, Joshua ducking and stuff like that, and then Dazone came and offered all the money to Wilder, and he didn't take it. So you see, like that, and then obviously he kept saying that Joshua Joshua ducked um, what Joshua ducked him. That's what Wilder said. But then during the Fury during the negotiations for a trilogy fight with Fury. There was talk. Wilder came out and said, like, oh, I could have fought Joshua. And obviously suddenly Eddie Hearn jumped on that and he was going, look, Wilder said I could have fought Joshua. Clearly Joshua didn't duck. So I, I'm. does anyone really think anti-Joshua was was scared of Deontay Wilder? I, 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 don't, I don't see that for a minute. Okay, Wilder is a big puncher, but so is Joshua. And Joshua's far the better technical boxer. I think people who were saying, oh, it's just like, obviously... There was there was negotiations and the negotiations came to nothing and what and Joshua's team were part of that so clearly Joshua didn't just come over and say oh anything I'll sign any blank contract to fight Wilder and I mean nor would you expect him to so there's obviously an element of that but the people saying oh Joshua ducked him they never wanted to take that fight I, th I think it's a bit ludicrous really but um, obviously now Eddie Hearn's loving this he's he's you know I mean I I feel like he really has a bit of he's he's normally like Bob Arum he's gone back and forth with they've they've had a lot of um. You know, they've said different things about them in the media, but they can also sit down and do business. There's still a lot of re mutual respect between Eddie Hearn and Bob Arum. Whereas Eddie Hearn, when he talks about Wilder's team, you can tell he really, really has the ump with him. He really doesn't like him, doesn't want to deal with him. He, he loves he loves sticking the knife in on Wilder and his team. Obviously, there's recently been rumours that Wilder might fight Charles Martin as a comeback fight. And I mean, Eddie Hearn's absolutely loving that. Obviously, Charles Martin was the former IBF World Heavyweight Champion who Anthony Joshua just easily knocked out within two rounds in what, 2016 uh, and won his first world championship. And obviously, Hearn has just been suggesting, oh, you know, Charles Martin might beat Deontay Wilder. I feel like Wilder, while not the best fighter, should absolutely starch Charles Martin. And, I mean, that's why they're taking that fight as his comeback fight there. They, they want an easy fight to bring Wilder back after that, a year or so after the loss to Fury. So Hearn's having a bit of a laugh there, trying to suggest that Charles Martin might beat Deontay Wilder, which is just never really going to happen. But anyway, you can see clearly that there's a lot of bad blood between Eddie Hearn and Wilder's team. And I think he's really happy that Fury beat Wilder, and now he can do the dealings with Bob Arum and Fury's team. Even though there's this alleged sort of rivalry and bad blood between um, Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren, I think that's nothing really compared to Eddie Hearn working with Wilder's team. And also, Frank Warren isn't isn't really that involved with the Fury negotiations. He's got the the BT coverage in the UK, but it seems like it's all go between Hearn and Bob Arum. Really, I feel like Frank Warren not well not left out in the cold. He he's not really actively involved in this. You know, Tyson Fury's promoter is Bob Arum. And then Frank Warren just also has his UK TV rights. That's that's how it works. It's, there doesn't seem like Frank Warren's a big player at this table. But anyway, yeah. So it looks really good, sort of all steam ahead for um, Joshua Fury now, which is, well, I mean, 
after all this, all the situation with coronavirus and everything that's gone on, boxing was paused for such a long time. There was no boxing at all. Now suddenly we're coming out the other end of it, and it looks like maybe Joshua Fury is going to happen as like one of the first big things. You think, wow, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll trade all the all the kind of the waiting we had and all the fights that went up in smoke just to get Joshua, just get, imagine two Joshua Furies. I mean, that is the biggest fight in boxing. It's an undisputed heavyweight world championship. Two Brits as well for the British fans. It looks like that coming along is just absolutely amazing. But yeah, so it looks like that's going to happen this year, uh, Joshua Fury. Exactly when is still quite unclear. You'd think now with the way negotiations are progressing and exactly how it's all coming about, you think in the summer, you think that'd be happening in probably late summer now because there's nothing, they still haven't got a venue and there's nothing really concrete for um, anything concrete in terms of contract, particularly. I mean, they, I know they negotiated the split, which is a presumably 50, 50 ages ago, but that's, that's a, that small fry really. There's still so many things I have to go over apart from the split. Um, so you're looking probably, they want a big promote, they're going to want a big promotional run for this. So right now I can't see it happening earlier than August, but then, if you think about Saudi Arabia, if it happens in Saudi, how hot is it going to be in Saudi Arabia in August? I mean, it's going to be absolutely roasting. So is that going to be feasible? So maybe they have to push it back to sort of autumny, wintry time, sort of October, November. I mean, that is a long time to wait now. You're looking at nine, eight, eight nine months there, potentially. And see, can you see the fight happening in Saudi in the in the summer? I mean, they moved the they moved the football world cup from qatar in the summer because they were like even if we have the fights at even if we have the the football matches at night they said it was going to be too hot so surely the same applies for saudi in the summer for joshua fury and then you're looking at october november that's a long time now but anyway negotiations are ongoing maybe it won't be in the middle east maybe it'll be in america then it'll happily be in the summer it'll be like a big kind of july august thing i imagine but yeah so there's still plenty there's plenty left to negotiate for wilder fury uh, joshua fury it's it's not it's not, you know, waiting to get rubber stamped. It's not just waiting to be announced. There's still, there's still plenty to, uh, plenty to be organised. But everything looks really good, you know. Eddie Hearn coming out and saying there is no plan B. And, I mean, you can just tell that by... There's no other names being floated for either of them to fight. There's no, oh, if this happened... You know, they were, they're already organising Usyk Joyce on the side to take care of the WBO mandatory. I mean, if the Joshua Fury fight didn't happen, Joshua would be fighting Usyk. So... If there was a plan B, clearly they wouldn't be doing that. They'd be having Usyk as a kind of standby, but they're not doing that. So I think it's pretty clear. All sides just want to make this fight. The details will be the details. The negotiations will be the negotiations, and they've still got to happen, but it looks like it's going to happen. Also, obviously, there's the issue of a crowd as well. There's the whole situation with coronavirus, and that they're, they're going to want a crowd because that's a huge amount of revenue. Even, even just a few thousand fans in like the US or Saudi, if they could come to that fight... That's that's got to be that's millions in revenue. I mean, that's serious money. That's that's not money they're just going to chuck away. And go, oh well, you know, there's not not going to be any fans, alright. So that again pushes the the pushes the fight date back potentially. If you look at thinking about the the summer, would there be fans? I don't know vaccinations, how it's all working. I don't know exactly how you'd organise that. They're probably going to have to coordinate that with governments. Um, but we, you feel like Saudi would be able to make make something happen that the Saudi Arabian government would find a way to be able to let some, cause they're going to want fans at that event because I mean, they're going to be paying a lot for it. I imagine they'll get some kind of cut of the, the fan, the fan revenue. So about all oh, flying fans in though, would that be allowed? How's that all going to work in maybe the summer or the autumn? Is it going to be that some kind of vaccine passport? So there you go. There's another, there's another stumbling block right there. How are you going to deal with fans? And that might push the fight back. But anyway, the point is all the signs are good for Joshua Fury. So that is a good that is a that there are all good signs but thinking about the crowd issue the fans that could be a, that could be a real stumbling block it's not exactly clear how that's all going to work actually thinking about it would it be like you can only go to the fight if you're vaccinated that would be a weird that would be weird though and obviously you'd think people likely to go to the fight are probably sort of young middle aged even in the more expensive seats these days it's it's not going to be all sort of old people but they're the ones first getting vaccinated so they presumably want to wait till the young people are vaccinated to have the fight, but that's going to be a longer wait. But they want the fight to happen now, but then there might not be as many fans. So that is actually a big potential barrier. I, I don't know exactly. I mean, it just depends how countries do it, controlling the spread and how the vaccines get rolled out in the Middle East and the US. So obviously the UK has been very strong with their vaccine rollout, but the US has been much more patchy, obviously with their um, in different healthcare system. So anyway, that's a stumbling block, but... They seem to be working on it, which is all the good, all the good signs. 
obviously AJ versus Fury would be an absolutely amazing fight. Um, Fury's got to come in as the favourite, hasn't he, really? Tyson Fury's got to be the favourite for that fight after Joshua's loss to Ruiz and, and Fury absolutely battered Wilder. You've got to look at that fight and think, oh, Fury's got to come in favourite because... And just look, and then there's the the Klitschko victory for Fury. He just looks so calm. You think Fury, he, he, what does Joshua have over Fury? Probably punch power. That's a you think that's about it, really. You look at technique, you look at footwork, and you think that's Tyson Fury. And you think punch power is good. It's good that Joshua's got that, but just having better punch power than another fighter isn't going to win you the fight. You know, if you've got no, if you ain't got the skill to to hit them, then it's it's pointless. You know, Wilder had punch power over Fury, and Fury's gone and battered him, hasn't he? So. You look at that. You look at AJ Fury, and I don't want to write off Anthony Joshua in that fight. I feel like people are almost writing Anthony Joshua off, going, "Oh, I can't." You know, Fury's got that easy, and you shouldn't do that in any fight. You should never write off anyone. But I do think, especially Anthony Joshua, was still an absolutely amazing fighter, and he still got really solid fundamentals. It's, it's not like Wilder, who was a a really messy boxer and, and seemed really just dependent on punch power. Anthony Joshua is legitimately he's knocked out. Alexander Povetkin, who's a great fighter. He beat Vladimir Klitschko. Yeah, it was in 2017. You could say Klitschko's a bit older. Beat Pulev relatively easily. Again, you could say Pulev's a bit older and he's not the best caliber of opponent. Obviously, he lost to Ruiz, but then he put on a really disciplined performance in the rematch. Obviously, you'd say, yeah, it was a great, you know, performance of technique in the uh, the Ruiz rematch and the Joseph Parker fights. But then you look at you think, oh, but Tyson Fury could easily outclass that technique-wise. So... I understand why some people are sort of thinking, oh, I don't see how AJ wins that, but I'd actually really like to maybe do a video exploring how AJ could beat Fury because people are just dismissing him. People are dismissing him. And I, to be fair, I feel like I've heard a few sort of people in the boxing community say they think AJ can beat Fury, but they, they don't give any details. That is a pre admittedly one thing you, I feel like Tony Bellew or someone might have said AJ, uh, Fury, AJ beats Fury. And obviously Eddie Hearn said that too, but... No one's actually sort of outlined any kind of path to how they do it. Whereas the Fury supporters say, oh, look, he's got the technique. He'll just outclass him. He'll hit and he won't get hit. He'll be too quick for him. The feints, obviously Tyson Fury's jab feints are just amazing. They sent Wilder for an absolute loop. Uh, obviously, you could see him doing something relatively similar with AJ, whereas the AJ fans haven't exactly pointed out. But, you know, AJ's got that solid technique. He just kind of sat there, didn't get flustered by Fury, just got his jab out, got his one-two, stayed disciplined, but made it scrappy when he fancied it because... AJ can scrap. AJ can absolutely scrap. So you think Anthony Joshua, you could see him winning that fight if he just, if he was perfect on the night, basically. If if Anthony Joshua was perfect on the night, you, you can see him just beating Tyson Fury. You can see him getting in, getting in close, have a decent jab, and then like whacking him with something like a big right uppercut, and he's got the power to absolutely knock him out of any punch. So you can't write AJ off, but I understand that most people are looking at the fight and they're going, it's got to be Fury, isn't it? It's got to be Fury. And I understand that too. But either way, We'll find out when they actually fight, which does look like it's going to happen. So that's great. Sticking with the heavyweights, want to talk on a little bit of a smaller level. Um, Daniel Dubois recently, sometime this week, announced um, he's moved to the Tibbs for his training. That's Mark Tibbs and obviously his dad, Jimmy Tibbs. I don't know how much he's involved anymore. He's quite old, but obviously he's been... Jimmy Tibbs has been training boxers for probably like 50, 50 years. Well, he was a pro boxer himself at some point, but he moved pretty rapidly into training. Mark Tibbs, his son, he's been in, he's had he's had plenty of top talent with him, Mark Tibbs. Um, coached Dillian White for ages. They split for his their um, Dillian White's last fight where he was knocked out by Povetkin. They've got their rematch coming up in March, actually. But anyway, Mark Tibbs has been involved with Billy Joe Saunders a lot. I feel like Billy Joe Saunders has bounced around trainers so much. You know, he's been with Mark Tibbs. He's been with Dominic Ingle. He's been with Ben Davison. But he's done a lot of work with Mark Tibbs anyway, Billy, uh, Billy Joe Saunders. So clearly Dubois is in really safe hands there with Mark Tibbs. He's not a bad coach at all. He's not unproven. He's absolutely a top quality coach. And Daniel Dubois is absolutely right to do that. But I don't think he, ne I don't think he needed to do that. I don't think he needed to leave Martin Bowers. Um, I don't think there was... Obviously, Dubois took the loss to Joyce, and it was it was a crushing loss. And suddenly, he went from being you know the next big thing to people saying he quit. And you know, I've made my thoughts clear on that on the channel. I don't think he quit. You can watch the video for that. But um, it's he didn't need to, he didn't need to necessarily to change coach. I really feel like Dubois just rushed. The guy's still what 22, 23? So realistically, if he, he could he could win the world heavyweight championship when he's thirty five in twelve years in in twenty thirty twenty thirty three. That's not ludicrous, is it? 
winning the heavyweight world championship at 35, you could carry on boxing for another sort of four or five years as champion, retire around 40, especially with sort of modern strength and conditioning techniques. Athletes are going on, lo athletes are going on longer and longer. That's not crazy. So think about that. 2034, Daniel Dubois could win the world championship. And that's not crazy, is it? I mean, that just shows how far this guy's got to go. And now you don't need, he's, he's taking this loss to Joyce, but I think when you think about that, he could easily, easily, easily have another 10 years in this game. Minimum, minimum. Daniel Dubois is going to be going for another 10 years, isn't it? Because he's like 23. He's easily going to go into 33. So people, people like, you know, panicking and everything. Oh, Dubois lost to Joyce. Dubois lost to Joyce. Maybe he quit. Maybe he's not all this. This, this guy's so young. He's got so much left. He's got so much left. What's what's the rush? I think everyone needs to just just calm down about Daniel Dubois because they really are just panicking and thinking he's gonna he's gonna fail now and his career's on the rocks or something stupid like that. The guy's fine. The guy's fine. He's a he's a really top talent. He's got an absolute cannon jab, quick as anything, superpower, loves a scrap. You know, he's he's a sort of perfect modern heavyweight, big as anything. What is he like? Six foot five, six foot six. He's not small anyway. Yeah, okay. Is it did. Joe Joyce come in with, you know, really solid technique, you know, that proper amateur pedigree and, you know, I mean, beat him, didn't he? Not, he knocked him out and beat him. And he, he as the rounds went on, Dubois looked more and more out of it. So I appreciate, I appreciate the fact he has just been outclassed in his most recent fight and stopped. But also people just need to relax about Daniel Dubois. The guy's fine. He's still a top, top talent. He was just rushed. He was, the winner, Joe Joyce is now, is, is now going to fight for a world title in his next fight. In his next fight. So if, if Dubois had a, a mat, age 20, 20, 23, he's going to be fighting for a world title. Or, well, it'll be an interim world title with the WBO, because a bit, but the, the it's fighting for the, essentially, the man, he's fighting the mandatory. So that would be for a, that should fight, really should be for the vacant WBO title, but they're going to keep it on AJ so they can have the undisputed fight with AJ Fury. But anyway, that's by the by. The, 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 the next fight Joe Joyce is having after he's beaten Daniel Dubois, Daniel Dubois would be taking that place if it was him, would have been essentially for a world title or something very similar. At what, age 23, 24? And, and, and T. Joshua won his world title in 2016 when he was, what, like 28? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, God, look at that. He's still got plenty of time left. It was like his 16th fight. Daniel Dubois had, what, like 20 fights, but half of them have been like nobodies. So... This, he's still got so long, and I, I want to see Dubois just just put in with good good level opponents now, and just learn and learn. That's all he needs to do is just fight more. That's all he needs to do. All Daniel Dubois needs to do for the next ten years is just fight more and just improve. You know, work on things, get his technique up, probably get his um, footwork a little neater, get hit a little bit less. You know, the thing about Dubois is he's young and he, he absolutely loves a scrap, but and loves to just get on the inside, get gritty with it and just smash his opponents. And I mean, that works because he's got amazing punch power, but it doesn't mean he could get absolutely walloped back if he's not careful. And if you do that at the top level, you're going to get knocked out. That's a few things he could work on. But this guy's still a mate. This guy is still such a top talent and everyone's riding him off now. It's ludicrous. It's, it, it, the boxing fans are so fickle, so fickle. Before the Joyce fight, Dubois the the biggest thing Everyone's going crazy over him, rightfully so. And now suddenly he's, he's chopped liver and everyone's like, uh, forget about him. I mean, it's a joke. It's, it's a joke, really, when you think about it like that. Uh, but anyway, he's left Martin Bowers, his trainer. Um, Martin Bowers is still his manager, so it's clearly not like a an angry split or they've fallen out or anything like that. There's no sort of bad blood, which is really nice to see, especially with Dubois as a young guy. You don't want to hang him over him. But he really didn't need to, in my opinion. I don't think he needs to change trainer at all. I don't think he'd done much wrong. He just fought Joe Joyce, an Olympic silver medalist. Arguably, he could have been a gold medalist. Got and he and he wasn't good enough. And I mean, you can understand that at age twenty-three, after having not really fought anyone, only half decent opponents, Nathan Gorman. I mean, outside of Nathan Gorman, before the Joyce fight, who had Daniel Dubois fought? It was any good? I I, I can't think of any names. There's I can't think of any names off the top of my head. So there you go. And anyway, maybe, maybe Dubois needed it mentally, you know. I can only imagine the, 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 how awful he must have felt the last few months. I mean, he went from being everyone going crazy over him, fawning over him. The next big thing, the next big thing, everyone's like, oh, Dubois, you know, you want to be, you're going to beat Anthony Joshua, blah, 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 blah. This is going to, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And then he's, he's taken that loss to Joyce. And I, I can only imagine one, all that's dried up. His, his phone was probably buzzing every minute of every day before the Joyce fight. And now it's probably barely anyone's talking to him. And... He's and now he's had to face the allegations that he's quit 
people are looking at him saying, oh, you've quit, you're a quitter, you've not got the, you know, people like Carl Frampton coming out and saying, like, oh, when he gets to a really hard world title fights, he's going to quit again. I think that what's that doing to him mentally at age 23, 24. So I can only hope he's now surrounding himself with a really tight knit group, some really uh, like a close team who's really loyal to him. Hopefully Mark, listen, Mark Tibbs is a great choice. The guy's a great coach. He's, he's, co- he's coached Gillian White to super, to top level. Same with Billy Joe The guy's, the guy's class. So I'm not worried about him, it, who he's moved to at all. And I just hope that he can just relax now and work hard. And I mean, everything that comes out about him says he's just this most relaxed guy, like barely looks at social media, doesn't just literally cut, just train and that's it. Apparently, basically, Daniel Dubois' whole life is just boxing training. Which great, in which case, perfect. Just keep doing that. Keep doing that for another 10 years. That's all he needs to do. Yeah. Hopefully Dubois can relax and hopefully the, the general public can relax about him a bit and just say, listen, he's a young prospect who's learning. That's, that's what he is. He's a young prospect who's learning. That's it. And, he's prob- and he still looks like almost a bang on world champion. I mean, you look, he's still, he's, he's fought, fought well for a good lot of rounds against Joe Joyce, an Olympic silver medalist who's got God knows how many amateur fights, about to fight Alexander Usyk now. And that could be, that could end up getting him promoted to full world champion if Anthony Joshua gets stripped, stripped of his WBO belt. And you, you look at that and you think, it's, it's fine that he lost to him. You don't, you don't, you don't need to worry about that in any way. That's, that's, that's a good thing that he fought that well at that young of an age with that little experience. He's, and as, so all he needs to do is just keep what fighting, and surely he's going to pick up a world championship in the next ten years. How can how can he not with the level of talent he's already shown? So yeah, keep working hard. That's all Daniel Dubois needs to do. He, that's it. And everyone's suddenly making all these big sort of proclamations about his career, and you just think, what what are they on about? What are they on about? Anyway, that's all I have to say about the heavyweights. Moving to this weekend or tomorrow, actually, it'll be when this is released. Josh Warrington is uh, back. So obviously. He's no longer a world champion, but he's got his sort of first fight in a long old time. He didn't fight. He hasn't fight at all since um, the pandemic's hit. That's got to be about over a year's inactivity. Uh, he's no longer world champion. Obviously, vacated his belt. I've talked about that on the channel. He's looking for the big fights, but that's hard now with no world championship. But you do think the allure of fighting Josh Warrington for those people like Kanju, Gary Gary Russell Jr. Now he hasn't got the belt. He's he suddenly it's the hardest fight in the division. And all you're doing is defending your world championship. So what I'm imagining is they're all going to demand, demand an absolute shed load more money. And I mean, arguably rightfully show. And also the 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 Kanju fight, just to get technical for a second. Kanju is the regular WBA champion. And Leo Santa Cruz is still the super champion. Um, and But if you are a unified champion in the division, you always have to be the WBA super champion. So if, if Kanju had, had fought Josh Warrington with the IBF belt... Leo Santa Cruz would have been stripped and the winner of that fight would have been IBF and WBA super champion. But now the IBF belt is gone. The winner will still only be WBA regular champion, which I know this, I mean, this is just ludicrous talking about this. The the, the WBA are a joke. But anyway, the point is the winner of Warrington Kanju will now go from what would have been double unified world champion with the WBA and IBF belts to now having just the mini WBA belt, which no one, the regular championship, no one really cares about. So that's kind of a big hurdle now that's lost a lot of their prestige of that fight. Um, but anyway, looking at this weekend, he's fighting a guy called um, Lara, who's not particularly, listen, it's a warm-up fight back for Josh Warrington. It, it'll probably be a good scrap. I'm sure Lara will, will be absolutely up for it. He's not someone who's just going to sit there and get knocked over. Absolutely not. Not at this level of boxing, but Warrington should come through it very easily. Then hopefully Eddie Hearn can get him in the top fights. I mean, Warrington's just signed for him. Hearn's clearly made him a lot of promises. They clearly planned vacating the title. They could have fought Kid Galahad. Kid, Kid Galahad is roughly on Eddie Hearn's books in some form. So they could have done that. So hopefully they have a plan for, for vacating that title. Um, anyway, I, again, I, I I don't hate that Warrington's vacated his title. I've made my point, uh, views clear. It's sort of a marginal one. I understand that he wanted the big fights. He didn't want to fight Kid Galahad again. It was a boring fight the fight first time and no one really cared. And it would be a boring fight the second time. And again, no one would care that much. So I understand why he's vacated. But anyway, he's fighting Lara this weekend. He'll get through that. And hopefully we can see Josh Warrington fighting out some against some of the big names. Now, Kanju, Gary Russell... Any any of the top featherweights, really. I don't know exactly who it'll be. 
Um, so now Kid Galahad and Jazza Dickens, I couldn't remember who it was when I made the original video. I didn't remember that Jazza Dickens was going to be the one fighting against Kid Galahad as the IBF number two for Warrington's old title. But that's going to happen now. I mean, let's be honest, who outside of, you know, proper boxing fans knows Kid Galahad or even more Jazza Dickens? I know Jazza Dickens is only vaguely and I really try and follow boxing. I know he's won this tournament recently. He's all been bouncing around in his career. Everyone's very happy for him because, you know, he seems like a really good bloke and that's great. But... It's not a very high-profile fight, is it? That's a that's going to be two Brits fighting for a world title, and you think who really is going to be that interested in Jazza Dickens versus Kid Galahad? It's just not. It's not high-profile. Um, the winner of that fight probably Kid Galahad. You think you'd have to say he's the absolute favourite for that. It's it's not sure what he's. It's, it's a bit unclear what he's going to do. Presumably, he's just going to have to go on the road to America. He's probably someone like. Bob Arum or Al Heyman in the US will pay him a shed, pay him a shed load of money to fight someone half decent, and the or the US will the the judges will be dodgy. The they'll get the worst treatment there because they'll just be there to try and nick the belt off them. Basically, Kid Galahad presumably. They'll, uh, maybe they're given to. Uh, could he get a unification? Maybe get a unification fight against someone like Gary Russell. Maybe even before Warrington. But I don't see it. I see the winner of that fight, Kid Galahad, just Dickens, just not not having that much on, and then that again justifies Warrington's decision more because you think even keeping that IBF title it still doesn't guarantee much because you look at the winner of that fight and you, you just think what's what's the path for them Kid Galahad wins that fight what does he do next it's, it's, it's not clear is it because Warrington doesn't want the rematch so even though that would be a an obvious one it, it it's not wanted by one side of that so it's probably not going to happen um so really it's not not clear what's going to happen next with that IBF featherweight championship situation but anyway Josh Warrington himself Win this fight at the weekend, get the big fights, fingers crossed. Although now he's vacated his career, he might have to take a, sh take a lot less money. But I'm sure they've, they've worked that out. They're going to have worked out all the permutations of vacating the belt. Hearn and Warrington and, and Warrington's dad, uh, who's very involved in his career. They're, they'll have planned that all out. I trust that. Um, I already had a small uh, rant about the WBA. But I'm going to just do it again. The WBA obviously stripped Manny Pacquiao of their welterweight title for inactivity, which seems a bit harsh with the um, COVID situation. Pacquiao's obviously a huge star. I can only imagine he makes loads of money off the gate of having fans at his fights and not having that probably probably just meant that hosting a man... I mean, there's a, there's a certain level of quality you're going to expect for a Manny Pacquiao fight. The, guy, the guy's older as well. He doesn't want to have tick over fights and oh, just have this sort of warm-up fight keep myself busy he's what 40 40 something he's a senator in the philippines or something you know this guy this is manny Pacquiao. he's he's not gonna have another 20 fights in his career is he the guy's been fighting for decades i mean he's been fighting at the at world championship level for decades let alone fighting as a you know an amateur and all that so I, it seems harsh to have stripped manny Pacquiao. he's now the the champion in recess, which is, I mean, it's, it's very unclear what that what that means, being the champion in recess. You're not a mandatory challenger. If you come back, I don't think you're straight away top of the rankings. I mean, it's the WBA, isn't it? The, the WBA now have super champions, regular champions, champions in recess, and gold champions in, in most divisions. And no, literally no one knows what it means. It, it's shocking. It's awful. It's confusing. Everyone hates it. Everyone hates it. What What is the... The WBA gold champion as well isn't necessarily the mandatory. Or the, you'd think there'd be a hierarchy where it's like, okay, the super champion's at the top, and okay, or if someone gets injured or doesn't fight or whatever, you give them champion in recess, forget about that. But you think, okay, the regular champion is like one step away from mandatory for the super champion. But no, they, they never order the regular champion to fight the super champion. And you've got this gold championship which is knocking about, which doesn't really mean anything. I think... Joe Joyce is the heavyweight WBA gold champion, but the WBA looks set to make um, Robert Hellenius or Adam Kaunaki after Hellenius beat Kaunaki as their mandatory, who's got like the intercontinental belt or something like that. So it's 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 just ludicrous. It's it's it is awful, and 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 boxing fans have rightfully pointed out that it's awful. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, Manuel Char was stripped of his regular WBA belt. Now he's champion in recess because Trevor Trevor Bryan fought uh, Bermenster Vern in. in uh, instead of Manuel Char. Trevor Bryan was meant to fight Manuel Char for ages, but anyway, the fight finally happened. I mean, that should have happened years ago. Manuel Char hasn't fought in years, so they stripped Manny Pacquiao after about a year, year, a year and a, a half with COVID of inactivity, but Manuel Char has probably has not fought in like three years, and he's just done nothing with his WBA regular belt. He's just been, he's just barely fought, and he's done nothing, and, and now they strip him, now, at the same time as Pacquiao. You just think, they're just making it up as they go on, Literally, people literally can't tell who's world champion anymore. 
Like in that featherweight div- division, you ask people who's WBA featherweight world champion, they're probably they're probably more likely to say it's Kanju than Leo Santa Cruz because Leo Santa Cruz gone up to gone up to super featherweight. He just fought he just fought um he just fought Tank Davis uh, at, for the at super featherweight, and that was all that was also going to be the winner of that was going to get the WBA regular lightweight championship. But but Leo Santa Cruz is still the super featherweight champion, not the the WBA super featherweight champion. That's another thing about calling. Their their champions, super champions, the WBA. The, the the weight classes are already called super. So like WBA so Canelo just won off of Callum Smith, the WBA super, super middleweight championship. It's ludicrous, isn't it? It's it's stupid. It's actually stupid. And it it's crap like this is why people are not following boxing. I mean, it is such an awful contrast with the neat, clean USC that just has one set of rankings. Everyone agrees is roughly the way the fighter should be ranked. There's one champion. The champion fights the number one contender every few months. And then you look at boxing and you see the shit show the WBA are putting on. And it's just awful. And it it, it is killing boxing. Because that I don't know, personally, I don't know anyone you could say, oh, they're, they're, they, uh, they're a big boxing fan these days. What you get is people who follow MMA and boxing. And apart from me, out of all the people I know, they follow MMA more. Boxing is like the side thing. They're like, oh yeah, follow a bit of boxing, but more I prefer MMA. I don't know anyone who prefer, apart from me, I have my friends who prefers boxing to MMA. I, I could, I want, I want to do a rant video about the sanctioning bodies in the future. Like Rummy's Corner did a good one, especially he highlighted the sanctioning bodies' websites are crap. The rankings are never updated. The champions are never changed. The, the websites are crap. The organizations are crap. I won't make this into a rant, but anyway. Um, I, I, the, the WBA, all the sanctioning bodies are off. The WBC do, I mean, they, they take the piss with their franchise champions and, and diamond champions. The WBA are, I think, the worst, which is annoying because I, I used to really like the WBA. Another thing the WBA with their regular champions, super champions are doing, past WBA champions aren't getting the credit they deserve. People think David Hay, when he won his heavyweight world championship, was just the WBA regular world title. And there was some kind of higher champion than him in the division. There wasn't, because there wasn't a WBA super champion at the time. There was just a WBA champion. He bought, he beat Nikolai Valuev legitimately to become one of the boxing world champions. And then he lost that belt to Vladimir Klitschko. Because the problem is, because originally the way the WBA did it is, you'd have a WBA champion... And if someone became a unified champion, they'd become super champion. Unified essentially meant super with the WBA. And then they'd have a regular championship. I think it was because they understood that they wouldn't be able to call as many mandatories on a unified champion because they'd be dealing with multiple sanctioning bodies. So they made a regular champion to keep their kind of rankings moving, which sounds reasonable. But now they've changed their system to every division, no matter what, has a super champion and a regular champion. And now they've added gold champions and champions in recess. And it's just fallen apart. People say, oh, David Hay was just WBA regular heavyweight champion. They, I've heard Dillian White say, oh, he just won the WBA. So this is proper in the boxing world. Rummy's Corner, I mentioned, he called David Hay's heavyweight championship a, a trinket. It was legitimate, one of the legitimate heavyweight championships. People genuinely don't know who's champion anymore because of the WBA's antics. It's shocking. Anyway, I won't rant. Um, I want to talk a little bit about boxing history now, actually. I'm going to try in every... This because this is the first episode of today. In every episode, I want to try and talk a little bit of boxing history because, uh, I mean, it's a great part of the sport. It's part of the reason I fell in love with boxing is just the, the rich history on demand that every, everyone loves to talk about. I feel like boxing fans, they, they all love to talk about the history of the sport more than, the, more than what's going on now. They're all like, oh, no, boxing now is crap, but in the past it used to be amazing. But anyway, if, if the boxing world's really busy and there's a really chaotic show, I'm, I might not be able to, but I am going to try and talk a little bit of boxing history every week. And this week, I'm actually going to be a bit controversial first one. I want to talk about Sugar Ray Leonard, and I want to talk about the idea if maybe he's a little bit overrated. I know, you're going to think, what? Sugar Ray Leonard's one of the best of all time. And I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that he is one of the best of all time. But I'm just going to say, is he maybe a little bit too praised in his role with the Four Kings? If you look at the other three, he's he is the he's the most famous of the Four Kings and the most sort of highly regarded i think he's the most the one that gets brought up the most now obviously i mean hagler still gets brought up loads as a kind of especially if you're talking about middleweights but i feel like sugar ray leonard is certainly the the most famous of the four kings and i suppose my point is if you look two of the most important decisions of his of his career he was very fortunate hagler in 1987 and hearns in 1989 the hagler fight i mean is still debated to this day 
people <laughs> 30 plus years later are going back and forth who won what should it have been you know l- lots 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 of people think Hagler won that fight it was a split decision so anyway it was very close but if, if Hagler won that fight I don't think anyone would be saying it was a travesty that's the point and Tommy Hearns in 1989 Sugar Ray Leonard himself has come out that was fight was scored a draw Sugar Ray Leonard himself said he thinks he lost the fight he thinks Tommy Hearns deserved to win so look at Sugar Ray Leonard's resume you look at that and you think swap that swap that Hagler win in 87 and that Hearns draw into 89 to losses. You look at that record, it doesn't look as impressive anymore, does it? I can't believe I'm saying that, but you look at that record and it doesn't look as impressive. Suddenly, he's lost to all the three, all three of the other four kings. He's lost to Duran in 1980, he's lost to Hagler in 87, and he's lost to Tommy Hearns in 89. Listen, I appreciate Sugar Ray Leonard had not fought in, in three years when he fought Hagler in 1987. And that is amazing that he came back and went 12 rounds with this guy who'd just been smashing up, destroying the middleweight division for seven years. That, that is amazing. But it is also not Marvin Hagler's fault or something that should be counted against him that Sugar Ray Leonard hadn't fought for three years. He just fought the man in front of him. And if you look at that, you look at Sugar Ray Leonard's record, suddenly... He goes from essentially in his proper career because he came back against Terry Norris and Hector Comancho. But I appreciate that they they were like comeback stupid comeback fights when he was well past it and he shouldn't have been he shouldn't have really been in the ring and everyone kind of knows that. But anyway, so you look at that and suddenly it goes from his ending his career record by beating Duran in their third fight as thirty six one and one. Suddenly it's thirty five and three. 35 and 3, because the, the draw turns into a loss and one of the wins becomes a loss. And suddenly he's lost to Duran, he's lost to Hagler, he's lost to Hearns. And you look at that record and you think, is it, is, is, is it? And that record was very close to happening. The Hagler fight was absolutely on a, on, a, on, a, on a coin toss. Plenty of people think Hagler won. The Hearns fight, plenty of people think Hearns won. Even, even Sugar Ray Leonard himself says he thinks Tommy Hearns won that fight. If his record finishes as 35 and 3... Is he as highly regarded as he is today? That's what I'm going to say. And I know ifs, buts, maybes, whatever. But I'm just, I'm just making the point. And then you look at the, uh, the, the fights against Roberto Duran. Obviously focusing on the first two because uh, the third was in 1989. It was they were both well past it. It's, it's not as more important. I feel like, obviously, the very famous nature of the victory in the second fight. And I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, caused that to happen. Sugar Ray Leonard made Roberto Duran quit. That is true. The very, very famous nature of that, I think, somewhat takes away from the fact that Leonard lost the first fight. You know, 15 rounds, Roberto Duran ground him down, he turned it into a, a proper dirty scrap, the kind of fight Duran loved to fight, and he outclassed Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard didn't touch, didn't box as much as he should have, didn't move as much as he should have. Duran, Duran blocked him. He sort of, he, he, If you've seen that fight, he sort of blocks him in the corner a lot and just, just wails on him to the body, just makes the fight filthy over 15 rounds. And that was an amazing win, amazing win for Duran. And then, yeah, obviously... Leonard beats him in the rematch, obviously makes him quit, you know, plays with him for seven rounds, and then eventually Duran gives up. But just to put it out there, that after that first fight, Duran was sort of drinking, partying, celebrating, all that. Um, he puts, I can't remember exactly the amount of weight he put on, but it was, it was a, a huge amount. That was absolutely, in that second fight, November 1980, was nowhere near the caliber of fighter we saw in June of that year in the first fight, Duran Leonard, when Duran won. He wasn't as good. I, f- I feel like even the biggest Sugar Ray Leonard fan out there, the guy, his most staunch defender, the person who's super angry at me for even suggesting any of this, would admit Roberto Duran was not in- as good in their second fight as he was in their first. And again, that's not Sugar Ray Leonard's fault. He can only fight the man in front of him. But you just have to take that into account when you remember the the the. It, it was in- I mean, it was amazing the second victory, making Dur- making Roberto Duran quit is amazing. But yeah, that is just the little caveat you have to have in the back of your head. So, I mean, the listen, Sugar, Sugar Ray Leonard is, is, a, is a legend. That he is, he is absolutely amazing. He's one of the best boxers of all time. He's this huge star. I don't want to take anything away from the guy. I am just starting to have a little, start trying to start a conversation at, about whether he deserves to quite be on the pedestal he is. Now, listen, the guy's footwork and speed and boxing IQ is amazing. The guy's from the era of 15 rounders. He's absolutely tough as nails. This guy would consistently go 15 hard rounds. And talking about his boxing IQ, that's an element of Sugar Ray Leonard, in contrary to what I'm saying, I think he's actually underrated because he would always, always adjust himself pretty much perfectly to the kind of fighter he was fighting. Apart from that, I think that in that first Duran fight, he learned always adjust yourself correctly because Duran got in his head for that first fight and may, and incur, and, 
got into Sugar Ray Leonard's head and made him fight a bit dirtier than he should have. It meant that he didn't move, didn't use the footwork, didn't use the jab as much as he should have. He was a bit too keen to get into a slanging match because he wanted to hurt Duran because Duran was in his head. And from that day, from that fight forward, I think Sugar Ray Leonard learned from that and always fought the perfect fight to counter his opponent. He never got drawn in by anything any of his opponents did. He always fought the perfect fight to counter him. But then again, so you look at that and you think, okay, so Duran was the one who had to teach him that by getting in his head, by making him fight a dirty fight that Duran loved and then beat him, that he had to teach Sugar Ray Leonard not to do that in future. That's just another... I'm just trying to start the debate here. He was, ve he was very close to having lost to all three of the other four kings. Generally, I think Sugar Ray Leonard is probably considered the, the best of the four kings by most people. I'm not, that, that, I mean, I, I don't think that, but I, I think a lot of people do. But suddenly, if he's lost to Duran, he's lost to Hagler, and he's lost to Hearns, even with his other wins over Duran, his other win over Hearns, he only fought Hagler once, of course. But suddenly, I think he's not as highly regarded as he is today. And that was, both of those decisions were on an absolute knife edge. Both of them. So, I'm just trying to start that conversation. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, um, I will wrap this up about there. I, <laughs> I don't know if I should have ended it on me somewhat trashing an absolute legend in Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, the guy, the guy's one of the greatest of all time. But I just I just want to start that little debate because it's something I've thought for a long It's kind of grown as like a seed in the back of my head. I think, wait, Sugar Ray Leonard, very close decision against Hagler. And then you, and then you look, and then I remember hearing him say, oh, you know, I think Tommy Hearns won, it, won the fight when we drew. And suddenly, I, and then you see all the praise Sugar Ray Leonard gets and you just start to think, oh, is, is there something there? Is there something there? Maybe I'll make it its own video. But I think I've said what essentially what I want to say here. So anyway, I think I'm going to wrap up there, roughly the first episode of the Boxing District podcast. Um, thanks very much for listening. There will be more videos soon. There will be more podcasts soon. I don't know what the release schedule is going to be like for the podcast. I'm just going to try, I'm going to try and make as many as possible, basically, at least for now. I'm going to try and make as many podcasts as possible. It could be one out every three days. Uh, it could be, you know, every couple of weeks, just depending. I'm just busy. I need more time. I want to give more time to focus to the channel and the articles, the website, everything. And that's what I'm planning on doing. So essentially, that is about it. In terms of what we've got this weekend for boxing, that's essentially it's just the the Josh Warrington fight. That's about it off the top of my head. I don't think there's anything much going on in the US. Looking forward, uh, White Povetkin too. That's an absolute tasty fight. And it's, it's reasonably close, not too far away. But that's about it. Yeah, so I think I will wrap up there. Um, what do you think? Talk about anything I've talked about in this comment anything in this podcast put it in the comments you know what wilder breland what do you think of that the heavyweights aj fury how do you think it's going who do you think is going to win the fight oh daniel dubois i definitely want to hear people's opinions on that do you think he should have changed trainers do you think he needed it um do you think it, 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 people are being too harsh on him now do you think he he has maybe quit do you think he does have a big problem with his career josh warrington what do you think of that with him vacating obviously i've already talked about that but what about his future now do you think he's gonna be able to get the big fights do you think it's easier now he's vacated the belt or harder what do you think about kid galahad and uh, jazza dickens what do you think the winner of that fight does i'd be really interested because i really can't, i can't see what they're gonna do so what do you think the winner of kid galahad jazza dickens does i'd love to hear that uh the wba feel free to have a rant about them in the comments because i uh, god knows i love it Sugar A. Leonard, go on, what's your opinion on that? Do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree here, talking absolute shit, or do you think I have a point that maybe he's just, 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 I'm just saying he's just said, let me be a touch, a touch overrated. That's all I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting the guy isn't one of the best of all time. I'm just saying maybe he's just a little, little bit overrated. That's all I want to see. Okay, um, drop any of that down in the comments. Thanks so much for anyone who's listened to this whole thing. Um, have a good day. This has been The Boxing District, and I will see you next time you want to visit The Boxing District.